You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I was in California last fall at an event put on by UCLA. And quite frankly, I had done a lot of traveling and I was kind of sick of traveling. And I went and sat down in this room and then all of a sudden this guy got up and started speaking and I'm like, oh my gosh, hang on a sec. I know who that is. I've read his stuff. Wait. And I was just like, oh, I've got to have him on the podcast. So today... We're going to chat with Eric Goldwyn. Eric is a leading urban scholar at the Marin Institute of Urban Management, not the Marone Institute, the Marin Institute. If very, I'm sure, goes back somewhere. <laughs> he is known for his pioneering research on urban issues, fostering collaboration to improve city living. Eric, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you very much. What is the Marin Institute? I, I, I have to say, this is part of the New York University, right? Yes, yeah. So there's a an institute at NYU about urban man folks on urban management called the Marin Institute, uh, named after a guy named Don Marin who gave a lot of money to it. And so there are a couple different groups there. My group does transportation and land use, but we do stuff about air quality, criminal justice, urban expansion, civil analytics, and we just started a new group that does stuff about like forced sort of like migration and and things like that, kidnapping. Yeah. You know, so yeah. we all do very different things. Uh, but the goal of the Institute is to sort of have impact, whatever that might mean. And so our work on transit costs, the idea is sort of how do we bring down the cost of these projects and speed them up? And we think there's a lot of impact to be had there. Well, it's very interesting. I don't spend a ton of time reading urbanism stuff. I just don't. And people like, did you read, did you see this new study? I'm like, not really. But your stuff, I totally saw. And as soon as you started talking, I put name to face and then like, I know who this is. I wrote some notes and I felt like there's a couple of places that we should start before we get into it. Sure. And the first one I think is to kind of set a baseline for what what I believe and what you believe about transit and cities and local government. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a statement and then I want you to kind of react to it. So here's my statement. I believe that transit's really important for the future of cities, the future of the nation, and our overall prosperity. Is that a, how do you feel about that? I mean, I feel great about that. I don't drive. Okay. You know, getting to that UCLA Arrowhead event was like a cause of major anxiety for me. Was it really? Because you had to go from New York to LA and then yeah, well, did you right, drive yourself? So no, they, they have like a board where you could like try to match with someone, but no one posted any rides. And so I was like, I'm not going to fly to, I don't know, whatever was closer, San Bernardino. I don't know. I was like, I'll yeah. fly to LA. I'll just figure that I'll figure this out. It has to be possible. So someone posted a ride like a day or two before I matched with them. And I was like, you're the only person that's posted a ride. Like if it weren't for you, <laughs> I don't know. I'm taking a two hour Uber. I don't know what I'm doing exactly, <laughs> but um. Yeah, I don't drive. I, I do have a driver's license. But more important, I think that I think one of the ways in which we are probably kindred spirits is that we both see certain shortcomings in sort of the traditional practice of the things we're interested in, right? So like some of the road engineering stuff that you talk about with Strodes and so on and so forth. Yeah. Same with the way we 
sort of prosecute and execute some transit projects where we sort of fall back on certain norms that maybe just aren't good and make things worse right. and more expensive and slower. Well, let me give you this second belief. Sure. So my second belief here is I believe that local government is really important. It's not merely an appendage of state and federal government, but is important on its own. Like it needs to needs to function well. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's totally true. I think, you know, bread and butter issues, right? For day-to-day life, local government is where it all happens. Like there's just an article in the newspaper about a $1.7 million toilet in Noe Valley in San Francisco and how like it's got to go through all these permits and blah, blah, blah. And, and the issue is this is that like mayors need to care about stuff like that, right? Like trying to tackle larger sort of amorphous issues is important. And like, I think there's obviously we should care about that stuff, but you also have to make sure that just daily services and quality of life is, is good in your city and in your town. Um, and like, you can't sort of tackle some of these issues as a mayor, like that's not really what your job is. Um, right. And, and I think that oftentimes maybe it's trying to run for some other office or just, this is what the news is talking about. So you sort of glom on to some of these other topics and you lose sight of, Am I doing a good job, you know, picking up the trash, filling the potholes, um, making sure the bus is on time, making sure, you know, the schools are open, you know, so on and so forth. And so I think that's where local government really shines. It's not glamorous in the way that these well, other issues are. I bring this up, these two beliefs. We're on the same page. Yeah. Because the way that your stuff kind of broke through to me in the first place was that I was seeing it in left media and right media at the same yeah. time yeah. with a very different spin, right? Yeah. It seems like when it comes to transit, there's two different conversations going on. There's one conversation that is transit's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. Why are we subsidizing it? It's awful. And here's this guy here at Goldwyn saying how everything's all messed up. And then there's this other conversation about transit that's almost like a boosterism where it's like transit's the greatest thing ever and everybody should support it. And all we need is a lot more money. And why is this Eric Coleman guy picking on us? Yeah. Uh, we're just out here trying to do good. And that made me think whoever this Eric Coleman is, I really like. Him. <laughs> ah, well, that's, um, that, that's, that's interesting. I mean, your point is well taken, right? So for as long as I've been doing stuff, I've had both, fans and detractors on, on, on the right and the left. And I don't pretend to have lots of fans and detractors, but um, I, I wrote my dissertation about sort of informal transport in New York and sort of about like, you know, small guys going about their, their, you know, having a van and just getting people in there. And a lot of sort of right-leaning libertarian style folks were like, yes, this is the future. It's like less government. We don't need transit agencies. We need this stuff. That's not really my point. I mean, I think it's like, these are good, interesting systems and worth studying, but like, I would be more in favor of like a well-run, well-funded, you know, transit system. It's like, this is the second best solution. And then on the transit side, you know, there's historically since at least, you know, the 1960s, you know, there's been a wing of economists who have said, you know, rail is a huge waste. You should just do buses. And so I feel like that school had fallen out of favor in the you know early 2000s with like the, there's been a lot of transit uh, spending but obviously when you're you're bemoaning high costs it sort of seems like maybe you're saying oh just you know stop it that's not what we're saying because you know the capacity of transit and the centralizing forces of transit in particular i think are are what are so you know attractive i hope the more left-leaning critics 
I'm a transit rider. I take, you know, hundreds of trips every year. I don't drive. I live in New York. I want to see more transit per dollar spent. That's the main thing is we just build such a small amount. Nothing makes me sadder than when I see these projects that are, you know, it's a two mile streetcar, trolley, whatever it is on Main Street in a city that is, you know, 150, 200 square miles. And it's like, all right, this two miles is really not going to help you get from, <laughs> you know, where you need to go to where you want to go. It's a good start, but we need to think at like a, a network scale, right? We need to build networks and we need to build a lot more than what we're doing. Let me start with a big question then, because there's a lot of local leaders inside and outside of government that listen to our podcast. And, you know, they all have very strong feelings about transit, but they, they all, I think, kind of orient towards, you know, the systems that we've created, the, the kind of dominant way we do things in the US. What is it about transit and what is it about transit costs and delivery that local leaders should should know and frame. And I, I want to get into some of the factors that you brought up about why costs are high, but just overall, sure. what how should we be how should we be thinking about this in New York and, and outside of New York? Yeah, yeah, of course. Well I think there are a couple of things. I th so governance to me is, you know, and to our group, you know, is the most important thing. You need champions who are gonna vote in favor of projects who are going to allocate budget dollars to projects. And then you need them to let sort of technical experts do their job and not micromanage a lot of things. I think the big issue in the States is that no transit agencies are these weird entities. They're not state governments, usually. They're not local governments. They're sometimes they're public authorities, which could be a creature of the state, but is not sort of representative of the contiguous boundaries of the state. Or, you know, on, on the West Coast, sometimes they're the creations of a couple counties. So where they fit in in our federal system is confusing. And they don't have sort of, they don't get property taxes, right? They don't have a budget and a revenue stream that is reliable. So they have to get state funding. They need to go to the ballot. They need to, you know, obviously we could talk about fare box recovery as another thing, but, you know, their funding is, who knows what's going on? It's, it's insane. And it's I think a patchwork that, unrelated to the value they provide, which yeah. is hyper-local. Right. Ab absolutely. And the yeah. other part is right. Like the federal government has these grant programs for capital projects. And so a local elected, they see that as like, oh, well, this is an interesting opportunity where we could get a couple hundred million dollars, a couple billion dollars, whatever the number is. And then we need to come up with a local match. And that maybe is more compelling than just funding the normal operations. And so like here in New York, you know, like our local government, the city of New York, you know, the, the mayor's budget has, you know, no money for the MTA. They do cover some of the, the, the bus costs for a, a small thing, but that's kind of crazy. Like during the, de the depression crazy. in the 1920s, like uh, mayor Jimmy Walker spent over a hundred million dollars a year, you know, like building the subway and like in 1920s dollars, not adjusting for inflation, What's the right boundary? Where does the money come from? Who pays for what? Like all of those things are challenging because once cities are no longer on the hook for paying for certain things, that money goes somewhere else, right? And then like, how do you then claw back that money to fund your transit system? I get that. Um, so governors, you know, really need to be champions and, and get involved. And because transit agencies, as we we're saying, are so local at, when viewed from the statewide perspective, governors don't do that you very rarely will see a governor be like, transit, let's 
figured out in city X, Y, or Z that just makes it hard. Like who's their champion. They're easily pushed around, defunded, and they can't really fight back in a meaningful way. I know as I'm listening to you, I'm sure there are people saying, yeah, but the, our roads and, and streets and, and highways are not funded locally either. My answer to that is, well, yeah, that, that's why they're messed up too, <laughs> you know? But at least like the state DOT, like you, they do allocate money for that. And like, there is right. money for all of these things. And like, even at local levels, you'll see a city DOT spending a good amount of money on repavings and, and all those things. Like, where does yeah. that equivalent sort of money? I mean, transit does get money. They do get a lot of money. I, I'm not one of these people who's like, no one pay, gives money for transit. Like, I think the FTA gives out like 10, $16 billion a year. You know, it's like, that's a significant amount of money. It's not necessarily enough. And it's not necessarily like going to the right places. Right. Let's talk about that. The thing that I found most interesting about your work and about the presentation you gave when we were together at, at the UCLA function, I'll say this from my lens, how strong towns this shit was. This idea that it's it's not about more or less money. More or less money, we can have that conversation. But before we have that conversation, we actually need to get better returns or more yeah. value for, for yes. what we're spending today. Why don't you just go on that for a second? And then you you had four factors in there, and I want to kind of go through each one, but go ahead sure. and and react to that notion that the conversation of more or less money is an interesting one, but it's yeah. really, really downstream from this conversation of what are we doing with the money we have? Why, why is that the issue? Right. So when we started working on our research, and I, I should just ignore, I, I worked with Alan Levy, uh, this woman, Alif Ansari, and this guy, Marco Kiti, primarily. And one of the first things we did is we put together a database, you know, just what are the costs, how long it took. We have over 900 projects in our database. It's largely Chinese. But what you see when you look at the data is America has the sixth highest costs, you know, on a, a weighted average basis. Now you're like, okay, maybe that's good. Maybe that's not good. And we adjust for, you know, uh, we use a PPP conversion to adjust for different currencies and, and costs of living and things like that. And you might think, okay, sixth most expensive. That seems pretty expensive. But what makes that even more galling is that the countries that are more expensive are building almost 100% in tunnels, which is the most expensive way to build transit, of course. Right. Right. While in the US, well, I think- Well, this wasn't a modest oh, shift either. It was like a- Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. You, you saw the chart. Um, yeah. You know, in, in the States, I, I used to know the exact number, but I think, you know, something like 36% of our projects are in tunnels. So that means, you know, the, the, the majority are- either at grade, which is the cheapest way to build, or you know maybe they're in viaducts or in a trench, which is more expensive than at grade, and then tunnels. And tunnels, again, are, are the most expensive. Um, and we can talk some more about that. And, and so what all this leads, you know, led us to conclude is that, you know, we're just, we're not getting as much transit per dollar spent. And if we could build at the cost of either, say, the median, or at the cost of a low-cost country like Italy or Turkey or uh, South Korea, we could just have you know ten times as much as what we have in certain cases. And I think you know that's what is so depressing. I live in New York. We're about to start phase two of the Second Avenue subway. It's like a mile and a half, and the projected cost is seven point seven billion dollars. And that's just a lot of money. Like I mean, I think everyone can understand. That $7.7 billion is a lot of money and you're not getting very much value for it. And in other parts of the world, that could build you, you know, 
again, 10 times as much, you know, 12 times as much. Second Avenue Subway Phase 2 is uniquely expensive. And other parts of the world are, are starting to have similar sort of cost issues, right? Canada has had some recent issues with this. Australia has some issues with this. The British, their costs have been going up. But what gave us hope or gives us hope is that there are places that have seen their costs go up, but they've seen their costs go down. Uh, there are places that are innovating and building a lot of stuff and, and are doing it what seems like you know a very affordable uh, way, and there are you know stark differences in in the governance piece in particular, and then you know things like funding as well are also pretty different. Let me give what I think is a standard conservative critique sure. that that hears that uh, they're like, well, yeah, cities are incompetently run, and these places are corrupt, and da 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 da. But you did mention in there, you said Italy, and I've spent a lot of time in Italy. Sure. Italy is providing transit on a per kilometer or per mile basis at a much, much, much cheaper rate than we do in the US. And I don't know. I mean, I don't want to categorize all Italy this way, but this is not like a super efficient uh, Singapore-ish kind of place. I, I actually use Italy as the uh, the kind of opposite of Singapore when I'm explaining like two different approaches to to design Italy's kind of like a, eh, you know, put it through there and eh, let's go take a break. And, you know, it's not like you've got massive efficiencies coming out of the Italy governance system. Right. Well, first I should know there is a picture of Mona Lisa behind you. So clearly there you is, are, there is you are a fan, a fan of, of Italy. I am. A um, fan. But the, the reason why we studied Italy in particular was that they had this trend of increasing costs over time. And then there is a big, sort of corruption scandals in the 80s and 90s, which led to national laws sort of saying, well, you have to be more transparent about, you know, your your unit costs, right? Like you can't just have a lump sum contract that is opaque. Certain procurement methods where, you know, like what what we would call progressive design build, where you give a project pretty early over to the contractors, they're like, that's illegal. Like you, you need to like have some separation and some transparency and people managing these projects. Um, and they have sort of, you know, transparent public unit cost prices that, you know, people can look, Oh, is that a reasonable amount of money to pay for, you know, I don't know, a linear foot of concrete. And so that, that was what sort of drew us to the Italian example. They've sort of had this crisis. They, tried to grapple with it. You know, I'm sure there have been some shortcomings, um, but some of the things they put into place, especially around transparency, which are meant to deal with corruption, right? Like have this knock-on effect or this downstream effect on sort of maybe doing a better job at delivering certain public services. The other, the other thing that we saw in Italy is that, you know, they have a lot of expertise in building tunnels. I, I think the statistic is after China, Italy has like the most, they build the most tunnels or something like that. They have some ability and capacity and they have agencies or, you know, these, there's a, an entity called Metropolitana Milanese in particular that they know what they're doing. They can plan one of these things, they can manage it, they can design it. And so they do a pretty good job and their costs are low. And also the other, other important part, right? Like in New York, we have these stations that are, you know, they're the equivalent of sort of cathedrals. That's not, you know, they, these are much more Spartan. It's not, they're not as sort of, sort of decadent and and large. And, and you know, there's something to be learned from, from that as well. Well, that ties into the first of your four factors that you, you, you brought up in the presentation that I saw, which when I got out of college, my first job was as a consultant right. and we love consultants. We um, 
We do. We love consultants. I think the idea is that consultants have this expertise that we don't have in-house and we can go out and pay a premium for the really good person. Why is that not always the best way for a government to, to think about things? And what what should we be kind of aware of when we get into the the actual running and management of a of a transit project? I will answer your question, but I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, As a consultant, yeah. what what is the best type of client? The best type of client is one that gives like, you as a, a ton of money, like a government. Yeah. I remember working for the Minnesota Department of Transportation once. We had sure. a, a, this is my first job out of college, right? So I'm yeah. in my tw- early 20s. And I went to my boss and I apologized. I'm like, this project is taking forever. I'm so sorry. I'm working as hard as I can. They keep coming back with like these changes. And then I got to spend mm. hours redoing mm. stuff. I'm mm. sorry. And he's like, Chuck, mm. we're making a killing on this one. Right. It is a client that has a huge budget, has limited time to kind of oversee what you're doing. It has micromanagement issues. So they're like, they don't focus on the big picture. They'll come back and make a little edit here and a little edit here, which justifies huge amounts of yes. redesign work and time. Right. And at the end of the day, it's just a massive, like they, they really don't badger you at all on costs. We work with a lot of private developers mm. and it was like, if I, you know, if I told said this will take 40 hours and it took 42, they would come in and fight you over the 42. Mm. Um, it felt like with the state, if something was going to take 40 hours, we would say it would take 80 and then they would be fine with that. And we would be like, okay, we'll make it work. There are multiple ways to interpret the question. What's the best yeah. client, but what you're describing, right. In from my world is like, that's the worst client, right? Someone who doesn't really know what they want. Someone who is given maybe an indefinite quantities contract, you know, yeah. not scoped out the work clearly. And also has not given you the power to make the decision, right? It's sort of like, Chuck, I need you to build me a road. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you much more than that. It's over there. And then you come back and you're like, okay, Eric, here's your road. And I'm like, well, you know, it doesn't really have enough lanes or whatever stuff they would tell you. What you find abroad, because they use consultants as well, is that there's a specific amount of time, a specific task, and you are managed by a subject matter expert. Right, like that last piece, someone who knows the subject is the key to all of this, right? So that way, if you're designing the road and you give me something, I go, oh, the grade of it's a little bit wrong, or I don't, I don't know, the ask whatever you're using doesn't match whatever the code is. You'd be like, okay, yeah, you're right, I'll fix that, and not send you down on a wild goose chase of go study roads in Wisconsin and you know, I don't know, whatever Nevada and yeah. see if you know, we're harmonizing properly with American transit agencies. The people who run capital construction oftentimes have no experience building a light rail, building a subway, building any of these types of projects. And it's not necessarily a bad thing for someone like that to work on a project. That's a good thing, of course, to learn. But at the very top, you do need someone who has done it and has done it well and done it on time, done it on budget, because those people have seen all the problems, right? Like, um, I was talking to someone who's working on a, for one of the high-speed rail projects who has worked on a lot of them. And he was telling me that when someone was like, we should try doing it this way. He's like, I tried doing it that way 25 years ago. It doesn't work. And that saved them you know, hours and tens of thousands of dollars and you know, all kinds of things. One of the things that was so interesting about doing the research on the transit cost size, when I talked to consultants... I assumed they were going to be very defensive because like, you know, 
how do you justify some of these costs? But they're like, ah, oh, these agencies, they just run us in circles. <laughs> they just run us in circles. Yeah. They don't know what they want. We have to study the same things over and over again. And no one cares. Just as what you were saying about your 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 experience. And I think that is it's so crazy. I think part of the issue is that there's been a, a bargain where we were trading higher capital costs for lower operating costs and long-term liabilities, right? We don't want to keep Chuck on at MDOT and pay pensions and this and that. We'd rather just say, okay, AECOM, WSP, we'll give you $400 million and then that's it. It seems like a lot of money and probably could fund right. a lot of people at MDOT, but that that's sort of the deal we made because part of it, part of it is there is capital money from the federal government, right? That can take on those costs. Whereas if you don't have a capital project, how do you keep those people employed? How do you manage those long-term liabilities? If the governor of your state is like, I don't want to keep pushing money into the operating budget of this agency. Let me say that in a different way, because I feel yes, like it's please. deeply it's deeply insightful. And I want to make sure that people understand this. In any transit agency, there's a capital budget, which is kind yes. of one time we're building stuff money. Yeah. And there's operating budget, which is this is like an ongoing expense. And if we as a, a transit agency hire an expert in-house and have them on staff, that's going to come out of an operating budget for the most part. Like you're yes. you're here and you're working this. But if we just say, you know, AECOM, here's $400 million, go build us something. Um, that's one-time money. And I don't have to think about that next year and the year after and the year after and on an ongoing basis. Except when they tell you to go do all kinds of other stuff and extend the the project. But yes, I mean, you're, you're right. Right, 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 yeah. right. So, so from a long-term budget standpoint, it's almost like a, um, it's an illusion, right? We're, we're yeah. substituting building our own capacity and expertise for like short-term budget expediency. It was maybe one way to put it. Yeah. And, and I think when you start to look at that, look at it that way, you can say, okay, it kind of makes sense. The, like the way that we do things, um, mm -hmm. like it doesn't make sense to me, but whatever consultant was hired to come up with the budget optimization, you know, strategy, like this is what they sold them. And this is, this exists all over the place. Like people love outsourcing things and, you know, not yep. having consultants, <clears throat> even though the results, I think speak for themselves, they're not good going back on, on high-speed rail, like California high-speed rail, when it started, they were, I think, 30% in-house, 70% consultants. People know how that project has gone. And the CEO is like, look, we got to invert that that ratio. Like, it's not working. That's the case with transit projects. I think, you know, the other side of it, right, is even in a city like New York that has tons of, you know, has the most transit infrastructure of any city in the US, we didn't build a new line, you know, since the 1940s. And so you can understand saying, well, why are we keeping all these people on like, you know, maintenance, they were doing stuff. But, you know, you're a city like Salt Lake, you're a young agency, you're building a couple of things. Maybe you're not building much more after that initial burst. So why are you developing all this in-house capacity and then paying for it and so on and so forth? This That's is downstream of the funding issue though, too, because if, if, Part of your transit calling was to, in a sense, build local wealth and capacity. There's a lot to be gained by making the project 40% less expensive and 50% more productive on the other end. But if the calling is just to access this federal funding to build a project, it feels like it becomes more transactional at that point, right? Absolutely. 
Yeah, so, I mean, in one of our cases, we did a case on the Green Line extension up in Boston, and we spoke to a lot of people who were just like, look, the federal government was going to give us $992 million. Something like that. About, we'll call it a billion dollars. Um, yeah. And they're like, we wanted that money. Like, like I get it. That makes sense. Um, right. And then right. The, the other thing is that, like, if as long as the costs sort of are just eating up that money, you know, in addition to, you know, the local match, like, what's the harm? Uh, yeah. You know, you, you can sort of see someone having that thought and saying, mm -hmm. well, it's federal money. It's, it's essentially free money. I think probably the most controversial part of your research was the the second of the four factors that you you introduced, which was labor. Mm. And it's one of those where there's a lot of there's a lot of well, one of my favorite jokes of all time um, is it's too long to tell. No, I you know, I worked for the Department of Transportation as an undergrad. I did my um, my undergrad summer internships there, uh, di different departments. It was a very great experience, but one of them was in the uh, construction. And there was a joke that we used to tell about this crew, this MinDOT crew that was out. You know, they were riding along, and then all of a sudden, one guy jumps out with a shovel and beats up this turtle, like just beats it mercilessly, and then, you know, gets back in, and the guy goes, what did you do that for? And he's like, well, that turtle's been following us all day. That was like a joke that the construction crews told about us. But it was funny because you could look around and see like, yeah, you know, there's five of you out here working and there's four of us out here inspecting your work. Talk a little bit about the labor part, because I don't think we're saying government employees are lazy. I certainly didn't feel like I was lazy or anyone else was lazy. But there is something about the way we structure the labor component of some of these things where maybe it's less than optimum, right? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. So we we found in our American case, so we did a case study on the Green Line extension in Boston. We did one on phase one of the Second Avenue subway that one, you know, our labor costs are high, like the hourly wages are high relative to other parts of the world. That's true. But we also throw way more bodies at at everything than other parts of the world. And so... The New York Times had an article several years ago about the most expensive mile of subway. They talked about operating the tunnel boring machine, and they sort of were like, it's there three times as many people for these specific tasks. And so I want to just like understand that. I was like, let's just talk to the tunneling people. Let's How many people were there? How many people do you need? And what we found was that it absolutely, to operate and, and sort of service the TBM, I think we were 50%, had 50% more labor of the like craft labor than what we found in Spain and in Italy and France. And so, okay, that that's a piece of it. But then what you were just talking about, about supervision in our New York case study, I interviewed someone who um, used to get, you get letters from you know, all the complaints and he got a complaint from someone that said, I was up at 96th street, let's say, and I counted nine guys watching one guy do work. <laughs> and that's a combination of like, there's a foreman, you know, like on the labor side. Okay. But then it's like the utility company could be watching. The transit agency could be watching. The consultants have someone out there watching. The point is there's an overproduction of like a lot of different jobs on both the blue collar and white collar side. And we found that that's a big problem, obviously. And, and the other piece is that on the transit side, this is definitely true. I don't know how true it is in some other places, but I know on, on the high-speed rail side, this has also been true, is that we also don't use a lot of like labor-saving technologies, like prefabricated materials and, and things like that. We are 
a bit loath to push for. And I don't know exactly why. I mean, obviously, I think we can make some assumptions. But I know that hand pouring concrete on site is still very common. Whereas in other parts of the world, they look at, they're just like, what the hell are you guys doing? Mm -hmm. Like contractors who come in from these other countries to help build these projects are just like, this is not how we do things. And this is not sort of like cutting edge and the most innovative way to do anything. And so I think, you know, that's another problem that like it needs to be addressed head on rather than we talk about transit projects and California Ice Rail in particular is sort of like these are job creation projects. And those are just different goals, right? Like if, if we're trying to build something efficiently, cost effectively, that's a goal that I'm in favor of. And I think we should be pursuing. And I, I would say, let's spend the same total amount of money just building more stuff and employing the same number of people. So I'm fine with that rather than building a piddling amount with, you know, the maximum number of people. I think right. that's, that's a big issue. I think that's a perfect way to say it. I say this to engineers all the time. My, my thing is not to get the state to spend less on your work. Yeah. It's actually to get more value out of your work. And, yeah. and you know, I'd, I'd be happy to pay you even more for that, but let's get more out of it. But also, I mean, going back to your example with, when you were working with, you know, the DOT, like I talked to a lot of consultants who are just like, it's frustrating, you know, to, yes. to be run around like this, even though, yes, we're getting paid a lot of money. Like that, that was the thing that I thought was so insightful was I was just kind of like, it's a grift. Like they're just making a lot of money and that, you know, they wouldn't change anything, but they're kind of like, I don't want to spend, you know, six years of my life doing stupid studies about root causes that have nothing to do with anything. You know, someone told me, and sort of an illustrative example that I'm sure was an exaggeration that, you know, they had to do 37 versions of like a transformer. And it's like, how many versions do you really need to do? That kind of stuff is, you know, as you said, you were working really hard and they kept making changes. And it's like, I'm sure as an individual who's not the like project director, you feel that pressure to be like, I need to perform. No, that's what it was. And, there was nobody right. in the chain that I could look at and say, well, that person is dogging it. And that person's not really that kind of, that person's kind of mailing it in that they're, they're not, you know, they're kind of milking the system here. There was none of that. Right. And I think that's the like outsider criticism of government is that, well, people are just milking it. And I found that not to be the case, but there was a certain overall frustration with the fact that this was just not this is not a good use of our time. And there was no mechanism to address that part of it. Right. You know, there's not enough talking about that kind of stuff, right? So just like, yes. how do we do this stuff quicker, more efficiently? How do we sort of cut through whatever morass needs to get cut through? Like local permitting, I think, is one of these examples where, you know, like if a mayor is supportive of a project, does every single department in his or her agency need to issue a permit? Or can the mayor just say, hey, chuckleheads, Let's have one permit and just go. Like, we don't need to like do this. This is crazy. Um, it's right. slowing everything down and just like wasting time. And that that was one of the things in the the Noe Valley public the the public restroom. He said, I think I counted. You needed seven different permits from like the city of San Francisco, or maybe it was five or six, whatever it was. And it's just sort of like if it's important to the mayor, you know, she can say, hey, you know, Parks Department, DOT, you know, whatever the other ones are, I forget. Like. You know, it's a modular thing. As long as it has an interface with the water, like who cares? Like we don't need everyone to like have input on this. But because people don't care about these things until it's a headline, and it you know 
you could have helped, you know, save lots of times, you know, elected person by just getting involved to help smooth out some of those those challenges. Don't don't mm -hmm. get into like the station should go here or, you know, those types of things, but help sort of, you know, break the hurdles, you know, that you can. Right. Let's talk procurement. Oh, yeah. We've all heard the stories of the, you know, the the many thousand dollar hammer. I feel like those are easy to just poke at and not representative of systematic problems. That doesn't mean there there aren't systematic problems in procurement. How should we be thinking about this? Look, I think your initial example about Minnesota DOT, it tells you everything you need to know, right? Like if mm -hmm. you want to have a procurement system where you are giving contractors sort of carte blanche control about design and this and that, then like if you then go and, you know, start monkeying around and say, ah, you know, I'll change this, look at this, look, you know, it's like that is sort of antithetical to that whole procurement process. So I think that like, it's not surprising that design build gets stuck with a lot of, you know, like big claims at the end of these contracts that like, I can, I think in New York, we have like billions of dollars in claims on some of our bridge projects that are still unresolved. In talking to contractors, several have said, I worked on a project in the Pacific Northwest, like never doing a design build contract again. And now they want something called progressive design build where they come in even earlier, which seems like the wrong thing to me, but different issue. And this is where that in-house capacity becomes really important, right? Like if you know Minnesota DOT that you want a road to look like this, these are the standards, and then you hire Chuck and you're like, look, you have six months to do whatever, go, go to it. And then you come back with your project and it's like, fine, maybe one or two things needs to get changed. That's reasonable. But what ha ends up happening is that these projects get stuck in sort of the design and planning process because there's a lot of monkeying around. I, I give an example out in Seattle, there's a project, uh, West Seattle and Ballard, it's a light rail project and it's in year seven of planning basically. And they have not got to the draft EIS, which is, we don't have to talk about the environmental process right now, but that's like an important thing to get your locally preferred alternative. And the mayor of Seattle is like, why don't we look at stations over here, over there, over, you know, and it's like that resets the clock. You need to do a lot of engineering work to see what are the impacts that that's going to have. That's not helpful. You cannot do stuff like that. Like that's a capital offense in my book for an elected official. Like they need to, I don't know, get put in the padded room or something. Going to the procurement side is, you know, we design bid build has had problems. I think in large part because we don't know what we're doing. And so like no procurement process will fix that, right? Like if you're don't know what you want and you don't know what you're doing, like you can, you know, put as much lipstick on the pig as you want. It's not going to come out in a, in a, you know, any, any prettier. But I think what we've seen is like sort of a throwing the baby out with the bathwater where instead of saying, well, how do we fix design bid build to, to work better for us? Um, we've just sort of like looked for, you know, what we we're actually, we were talking about earlier with, with baseball, you know, some shortcuts and it's like, there right. is no short, short, you can't have a shortcut to building something well. Like, it's just like all the little details actually really matter when you're building a road, a subway, a house, you know, whatever it is, you can't just say, ah, we'll figure that out later. I struggle with it too, because if you put the politician meddling in the best light, yeah. you know, the capital offense, well, we want to get this right. And it's worth it up front to take the time to get it. That's right. true. Absolutely. And there is a certain like, okay, I get that. But on the other hand, I feel like the problem's even more upstream than that. We started out on a great adventure without really knowing where we were going or how we were going to get there or what we were trying to ultimately accomplish. 
And we wound up spending a lot of money figuring that out. I haven't really asked you how to fix the labor thing or the the third party agreement thing, but what do you do about this procurement problem? Because it does yeah. seem like it's endemic, really. Like that is one of the big, big issues. Yeah. No. So I think the answer is you need to spend some time planning before you have a project, right? You need to say, okay. Wait a sec. Wait, wait, wait a sec. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Say that again. That was that was so profound. You, you, you need to do plan. some. You need to, yeah, exactly. Before you're like, we're going to build oh, a billion dollar transit system, and you should do what before you spend a billion dollars? You should you should do some planning. You should have okay. Wow. You know, so in other Hard countries, it. they have master plans for their for their transit yeah. systems, and yeah. they say we don't have the money for all this, but we've done feasibility studies. We know you know what things should look like. You know, it's not. 100% design. It's not even probably 60% design, but it's probably in that 10 to 30% design area. And so like they know where the train would be going. They know where the stations are going to be most likely. And you you can refresh things. And then as money is available, you sort of say, okay, let's flesh this out. Let's go to the next stage. And I, I should say my conception and the conception of design bid bill that we sort of think of in our, our group is not you get to 100% design and then you bid it out. It's more like you get to 60% design and you're flexible to take input from experts, contractors on how to build stuff. You can make some changes and they can save you some money. And, you know, there is a collaborative element to it, which is, you know, very much not how things work in our country currently. At what point in the process does that um, capital offense occur though for you? What I have seen often is that the electeds get basically like, here's the final design. And then yeah. it's tweaked and, you know, changed and all that. There, it seems like there should be a gate that you pass yes. through. Yeah. Well, th where... there's a whole thing called the phase gate approach, which says okay. once you get through the gate, it's closed and you cannot go back. And at, at each phase, when you go through mm -hmm. the gate, you have to re-defend the value of the project. And yeah. if it doesn't pass whatever... The business case, whatever cost benefit you're doing, you actually you, you stop. You don't continue forward with the project. But the idea is that once you've sort of made it through, you can't go back and monkey around. What I would say about that example in Seattle is that they they went to the ballot box. They did an initiative called ST3 to get it passed, and it was based on like what's known as one percent design, which is not something that I've heard of on the East Coast. And engineers I've talked to have also not heard of it. But apparently, it's you know a drawing on a napkin, that kind of thing, with like. Roots are going to go here. This is all that we're doing. And it's like, that is not a developed enough concept to understand, well, maybe there's some sensitive ground over here that you can't just build that grade. Maybe you need to elevate or build in a tunnel. And so you're committing to something that is very <laughs> immature, very, you know, not fleshed out. And so it makes sense then to build when problems arise to like swoop in and try to fix it as an elected official in whatever way that you can. But the answer would have been, right? Like, let's spend some money on the front end, figuring out what does the city of Seattle need? What does the city of Minneapolis need? What, you know, whatever city need. And then maybe go to the, the ballot box or a governor or whatever and say, okay, we, we feel really good about these five projects. Let's get the money to start going. We understand you might not have all the money right now. So let's, this is our number one project. This is number two. We can rank things and then let's go. And since we know what we want, we know the solutions, we know roughly what it should look like, we can manage a contractor and a consultant effectively. 
this feels very un-American in the sense that you described the the 1% thing. And what came to my mind was that was basically the interstate system. I mean, we really like literally took Sharpies and drew out an interstate system and then said, we're just going to throw tons and tons of money at this until it's done. It feels like maybe we have that same mentality a bit on transit at times. Well, the, the only thing I'd add there, though, is that like we had like a bench of talent and experience True. behind us, you know, like, True. you know, I, I remember reading about, I think it was Colorado, like in 1900, like 75% of the state's budget was for road building because it was a yeah. jobs program. You know, it wasn't because they're like, we love cars. Right. And I think that right. like that experience over 50 years of continuously building roads, you know, the Bureau of Public Roads, that, that entity, you know, gave it sort of a centralizing force where it could say, do this, do that. This is the way to do things. And like the people who ended up leading state DOTs came out of that. Whereas like the FTA at USDOT is not, they're not a heavy hand that is saying, this is the way it has to be. They say, you send us the project, we'll evaluate it. We're going to make comments, no doubt. Um, and we'll push back. We say, you need more money for this or that. But they're not driving the ship. They're not telling transit agencies, you know. Here's what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, so... It's different. I know we're getting close to time. Oh, sure. sure. And I, I don't want to make you have to talk anymore because I know you are a touch under the weather. But uh, th this brings me to the the thing that was the most mind-blowing part. Because as an engineer, I kind of thought I understood how stations were built. And you showed me, nope, here's how we build stations. Uh, and it uh, it blew my mind. So tell me about our very efficient modular plug and play kind of approach. It's funny because if you would have said, what country customizes every station, Italy or the United States? I'd be right. like, well, Italy does. Their stations are beautiful. Like they're Naples, all Naples, Naples does. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the other Italian cities do not. Um, so it was a mind blowing thing to sort of uncover through the research, which is sort of how massive these volumes are. First of all, what I think is interesting is the consultant, one of the consultants, the design consultants is Arup that worked on Second Avenue Subway. They also worked on a project in um, Copenhagen called City Ringen, which I've never been, but apparently up to 70% of every station is like exactly the same in, in, in the Copenhagen case, right? So the same consultant, right, worked on that and they were able to convince the client of a modular system that's based, you know, and then also worked on the New York project. And I, t I talked to them and I was like, how standardized are these stations? Like we gave up, you can't do it. And so what happened here is there are a couple different things. One in Europe and in Italy, they follow a lot of standards about, okay, this is this much space, that much space. And we follow standards as well, but the standards are not national standards necessarily. It could be an agency's standards, which can be different from agency to agency. And, what we found in New York was that this concept of back of house space. So this is the space that's not for passengers. It's for the people that maintain and operate the system was just far larger than anything we could find internationally. And it's actually really hard to find this information, but we did try pretty hard. So some, some context platforms on second Avenue are about 600 feet long, but the station boxes. So the total length of the, the digs were a thousand feet for one station, 1300 feet for another station and 1600 feet for the final station. And there are some 
explanations for for why they're so much larger that are, are I think are valid. Even the most compact station, the one that's a thousand feet, right? That's still 400 extra feet. It's not 100 percent lar larger than the platform, but it's pretty close. And when we look internationally, you see five percent larger than the platform. 20% larger in like the worst case. And so 20% larger gives you 720 feet on that, on that, uh, in the New York context. So still a, th a thousand feet is a lot more than that. And so I was just like, what is going on? And so what is going on? There, it's, it's a good question. So the consultants went to the client, said, okay, this is our design. And you can see in the EIS document from 2004. They had something called combined rooms where like all the different operator people, you know, the people that maintain the track, the drivers, you know, all those people would be in the same space. And then if you look at the designs over time, you see, oh, well, there's an individual room for the, the track maintain. Oh, there's an individual room for the train operators. Oh, there's an individual room for the electricians and, pl and the plumbers and, and so on and so forth. And not just an individual room, there's a workspace, an office space eating spaces. And so when you have to reproduce all of these boxes over and over again, and then have a hallway connecting them, you kind of like, oh, I and it's all underground too, which is also madness because that's really expensive. The most expensive uh, way to build. Right. Exactly. And uh, so we're you, building office, custom office space at each yeah. of these places, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I will say, the MTA, they're building phase two right now, and they just announced a billion, $1.3 billion in some projected savings. And one thing that they're looking at is right-sizing the stations, right? Like lopping off some of that stuff, doing combined spaces, doing some of that stuff above ground. I'd like to think that, yes, our research is important and helped sort of spark that discussion. But in reality, I think the issue is it's a $7.7 .7 billion project. The federal government just gave them $3 billion. How the hell are we coming up with the rest of it? And so because of that, like, how do you come up with the rest of it? They just are now heavily in the value engineering phase and are just like, okay, these were things that were nice to have when money was no object, but money is an object, especially here in New York. We were going to fund some of the stuff through our congestion pricing uh, program, which is currently you know, embroiled in some lawsuits. So I think there's even more emphasis on like we gotta we gotta get leaner we gotta spend our money, you know, a bit more wisely. And so that's that's what's going on now. We also found in we, we did this project in, in Boston on their Green Line. They also were building these custom bespoke station headhouses. It's an, in a trench the station. I'm sorry the the right of way, and they went from from that with back of house space, sort of maybe not as luxurious as in New York. But then to Spartan, just like a weather shed, and that was it. You know, like they're just like we need <laughs> right. to just, you know, like we can't afford this project because <laughs> it's ridiculous to spend fifty million dollars on a station when you could spend, you know, two million dollars or whatever the, right. uh, the numbers. Right. Because um, the other thing is right, like transit is not meant to be like a place. A station is not meant to be a place where you commune with God. It's meant to be a place where you like wait for hopefully two minutes. And then get on a train going somewhere. Right. Um, right. Like they should be warm and comfortable, but like, do they need to have, you know, all these bells and whistles? Probably not. Um, well, it occurred to me after listening to you because I had never, I had never pondered this really. I was thinking about the Paris subway. Sure. And I mean, obviously, that is an old, old, old system. Yep. 
But I was thinking about how, you know, the, uh, the platforms are very similar, stop to stop to stop, but they're, you know, they're customized. Yeah. But what I, what I think of customize is just the way you would take the finishes. Like, yeah, the finish, it's the finishing. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you think of like an a apartment building, everybody's apartment is different, but if you're building the apartment building, you're putting modular same box. Kind of same thing, same boxes over and over. It never occurred to me that we weren't doing the same box over and over with our rail stops. Well, when you talk to a station designer, that's how you're supposed to start. You start with a box. And then like yeah. as you go closer to the street level, like it should get mm-hmm. less standard because like the tie-ins are more challenging. Sure. And so like the entrance is here, the entrance Absolutely. But like in New York, what we found is like even the escalators and the elevators were, they weren't the same in each station. And usually when you do a line, you do a uniform escalator elevator contract. That's like a thing. Uh, But when you're building only three stations, you don't do that. They, they, they thought they had the thought that like, just let the contractors figure that out themselves because like, we're not going to order for 10 stations where this would be an economies of scale issue, Um, which is probably true. But again, that goes to the, the point. If you could build a lot more, you could start to like just buy off the shelf type stuff. And you see it with rolling stock. I mean, like in, in the transit space in particular, there are a lot of buses. There are lots of places where greater standardization would really help. But there's great resistance to that from agencies themselves. Like they, they mm-hmm. I mean, I've actually never really encountered anyone in an agency who has said this, but what is said to me is that, you know, everyone sort of thinks that, well, you know, you have to have some unique thing that only your system experiences. And you know, that, that that's probably not true. Um, maybe if it is true, maybe, then fine, but. Well, maybe that unique thing would be a well-run expansive. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> that would be, that would be unique. Yeah. Well, you just got to go search for Eric Goldwyn on Google and you're going to get articles an interview you did with Matt Iglesias, you're going to oh, see yeah. a, a bunch of, it was really good, by the way, oh. and a bunch of other stuff. If people want to follow you and follow your work, what is the best, what's the best well, place to do that? Well, so we have a website, transitcosts.com. So mm-hmm. you can check that out. And if you, well, I don't know if you Google me, you'll find that. But I am the only Eric Goldwyn in the United States. So if you Google me, it's That's you're going to find I me. I, I you're, you're going to find me. It's a, not a very common last name. Um, and then, you know, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and things like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk to pretty much anyone. Like I, you know, you are, you know, a luminary, happy to talk to you, of course, but I talk to anyone. I go to community meetings. I go, I take the train places, talk to companies, talk to transit agencies, talk to community groups. You know, I'm, I'm a man. I'm out there. I got my Metro card, although we don't use that anymore in New York, but. If you ever get to Minnesota, I will come pick you up at the airport so you don't have to drive Thank you. up to Brainerd. Yeah, man. I've, been, yeah. I've been to the airport connecting. I've never stepped out of the airport. Okay. But, well, I'd I'd love to I'd love to but, I'd love to have you visit sometime. That would I'd be love wonderful. to go to a go to a Wolves game. We could do a Timberwolves game and yeah. uh yeah, maybe they'll play. We were chatting before we started this that you're a Utah Jazz fan, which made mm. me laugh. Yeah, but I understand it's laughable. Well, no, but being a New Yorker, Utah Jazz is a weird team to support. But I, I get the um, the historical uh, part of it. They, I, they were I, good, but yeah, exactly. I hate the Yankees. I mean, like in my family, we have a saying that we don't hate anyone, but we do hate the Yankees. Um, but I, I do like the Mets because it was that same thing. I grew up at a time when the Mets were super cool. Yeah, you grew up at a time when the Utah Jazz were super cool. 
Yeah, that yes, I, that's a, a generous way to put it. I don't know that anyone would ever say the Utah Jazz are cool, but they were good and they had some good players. And I would also, I'd, I'd love to go to a Twins game. Love the Twins. Um, oh, you know, for the same reasons, I probably love the Mets. Um, well, let's do that. We'll do a Mets game and a Twins game, and I think that'd be wonderful. I've never uh, been to a, a baseball game in New York. I feel like it's oh. one of the things that's missing from my portfolio of experiences. So, yeah, it's it's the best. Eric, thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Uh, Baseball is never bad. Even, even, uh, even when the home team doesn't win, it's never, it's never horrible. I agree. Um, Yeah. Eric, thanks for taking the time. We'll put some links to the work in the show notes and uh, I'll talk to you uh, someday again soon. I hope. All right. Thank you very much. Nice chatting with you, Chuck. Thanks for listening, everyone. And keep doing what you can to build a strong town. that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.